Welcome to the second session and an eight-part introduction to indigenous relations in BC. It's full of opinions masquerading as facts, just like the rest of life. Let's talk about how we got here. And by that I mean, this is a brief and consciously incomplete history of relations between First Nations and other governments. For this bit, because of the historical context, I'll use the word Indian. And I'm not going to cite too many dates and court cases, just a few milestones that are relevant to this conversation. And I'll use sweeping generalizations in the hope that if I unintentionally offend anyone, I'll offend everyone equally. For example, I'll summarize several centuries by simply saying that Britain, France, and Spain colonized North America, but there were already many, many people here with their own flourishing cultures. And at that point, everyone called those people Indians, or worse, except for the Indians. For more about that, go to the first session in this series called Names Have Power. So, the first date. Many say that government's legal obligation to recognize Aboriginal interests goes back to Britain's Royal Proclamation of 1763. Britain had acquired the North American lands held by France and wanted to keep the useful relationship that France had developed with the Indians. It did so by promising certain protections to Indian lands as colonial settlement moved westward. Canada has, and I'm using air quotes here, a special relationship with Indians. That was formalized in the British North America Act of 1867. That act made Indian matters a federal responsibility. The same act also made land matters the responsibility of the provinces, which leads to some jurisdictional issues. Both these dates and these documents and the commitments they represent are referred to frequently in modern case law. In 1876, the federal government proclaimed the Indian Act. The stated intent was to, and I'm quoting, civilize and assimilate Canada's Indians. The act is, is still in effect with changes over the years. It defined who is and who isn't an Indian, and yes, it still uses that word. It created reserves on which Indians would live and be managed by the federal government. And by that I mean managing both the land and the people. It imposed a formal political structure on traditional communities, creating Indian bands as legal entities with limited powers. Now, bear in mind, in many indigenous communities in BC, the elected band council coexists with that community's hereditary leadership structure. Keep in mind that they may not have the same interests or have the same level of internal influence. The Indian Act also established Indian agents, to be clear, white men, as the government representatives that would manage the affairs of Canada's Indians. Now, that included negotiating agreements for the use of reserve lands by non-Indians. And that produced deals like the long-standing Shaughnessy Golf Course lease on the Musqueam lands in Vancouver, which have tied up reserve lands needed for band housing for many decades, with very little monetary return to the band. And sadly, wherever you are in BC, you don't have to go far to find First Nations communities 
that were forced to relocate. Their villages were usually then burned to make way for European settlements or industries. That includes the Songhees in Victoria, the Cheslata in north-central BC, and the Squamish at Kitsilano. Kwasala and Nahwada, a coastal group, were moved because, as the formal records say, they were too remote to assimilate easily and were hard to service. The fourth date, 1982. That's when Canada's Constitution Act was proclaimed. It included Section 35, which recognized and affirmed the Aboriginal and treaty rights of Canada's Aboriginal people. Now, having said all that, from the Indigenous relations perspective, BC is unique in Canada. There are just over 600 Indian bands in Canada, with a disproportionately large number of them, around 200, in British Columbia. Over time, Britain, then Canada, negotiated many agreements with Indian communities, attempting to provide some level of certainty for settlement and resource extraction by addressing topics like hunting, fishing, and land rights. However, in BC, after the negotiation of Treaty No. 8 in the Northeast and the Douglas Treaties on Vancouver Island, the government's interest in and funding for negotiating new treaties ended. Some reserves were actually unilaterally decreased in size, like the Kamloops Indian Bands, to allow creation or expansion of nearby ranches. That really didn't change in BC until the 1990s with the Nishka Treaty Talks and when BC, Canada, and the First Nations Summit established the BC Treaty Process. And I'll talk about that in the sixth session. It's important to note that particularly through the 1990s and onward, a series of court decisions recognized the protection of the Aboriginal rights established by the Constitution Act. Now, to be fair, the provincial government has recognized the need to keep its decision-making processes consistent with these directions from the courts, sometimes quickly, sometimes more slowly, and often with an interpretation that doesn't satisfy the affected Indigenous communities. First Nations have been consistent and clear in their efforts to protect their Aboriginal rights and have Aboriginal title recognized. Those efforts have come at great cost to Indigenous peoples, not just financially for litigation and negotiations, but personally for those devoting their lives to the activism needed to bring about social, political, and economic change. So, where are we now? In the 20th century, Indigenous relations were shaped by legislation, social activism, treaties, and legal challenges. But two major, and I argue largely external, influences moved Indigenous relations in BC into the 21st century. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, often shortened to UNDRIP, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's Calls to Action, and I'll talk about them both in the fifth session. Over the years, BC governments have responded with a number of initiatives. In my experience, the first major shift toward reconciliation was the 2005 New Relationship document, and the other was the 2018 release of the draft principles that guide the province of British Columbia's relationship with Indigenous peoples. Those 10 principles provide 
high-level guidance on how provincial representatives will engage with indigenous peoples. They reflect the UN Declaration and the calls to action, and are really similar to principles introduced by the federal government in 2017. And of course, there have been a number of other agreements that were milestones in reconciliation in one way or another, and you can find some of the more recent ones on the Ministry of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation website, and I'll touch on some of them in the sixth session. So, that's my very incomplete overview of how we got where we are with Indigenous relations in BC. And, as I've said, I'll go into more detail on parts of it in other sessions in this series. The next session is about consultation and court decisions. I'm Peter Walters, and I thank you for listening. Thank you.